Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What do you do when your college is at the center of a national controversy? How do you respond appropriately? Today I will be joined by Nicholas Whitaker. He's a rising senior at Harvard College and a student journalist with the Harvard Crimson. In this episode... He talks about the misconstrual of student demands against inviting speakers and the responsibility of institutions such as Harvard, but also other universities, in setting examples in equality, inclusion, and scientific rigor. So I'm really happy to be talking to you today, uh, Nicholas. So yeah. Nicholas Whitaker, as I understand, you're a rising senior at Harvard College, correct? Yeah, yes, I you're am. a philosophy major, um, a fantastic journalist. So I've really been so <laughs> impressed with all the things you've written for The Crimson. So, so thank you for being on the podcast. And I'm really just interested in making sense a bit of the so-called controversies around speech on campus. And since you've written so well about it, I thought maybe you could say a little bit about your experience being a college student in this yeah. exciting 21st century. And so <laughs> <laughs> we can sort of yeah. go back. Okay, that'd be great. I'd love to hear from definitely, about that. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think something that I learned very quickly doing activism on campus was that particularly at a campus like Harvard, for the first time in my life, everything was under a kind of national, part of a national conversation. And that whether, you know, I was conscious of it or not, or meant it to or not, you know, when I and the others planned the uh, protest against Charles Murray that received attention from national organizations. And I guess that is kind of the, I would say, is like the fundamental kind of core of what my experience, you know, being an activist and, you know, a journalist at a university level has been, is that People from across the country are reading my articles and the New York Times and NPR and the Boston Globe are writing articles about my protests. And that's exciting. It's definitely exciting, but it's also kind of a lot to take in to realize for the first time that you're kind of a part of a national dialogue and everything you do plays into perhaps national narratives and national discourses. And yeah, it's a big It's been a big shift. Right. So your platform is much bigger than just writing yeah. for maybe 10,000 college students who may pick up the paper on their way to class yeah. in the morning, but usually ignore you probably pretty much even writing something exciting <laughs> yeah. for the Crimson. And now you have the whole country and the world looking at what you're saying. And I, so, so you're saying, so did you come to uh, college sort of thinking you would go into journalism and you wanted to add your voice to this or you just fell into no. it? No, no, not at all. It's very interesting. I, never intended to do journalism. I, I, when I first got to school, I wasn't planning on doing philosophy, but I pretty quickly fell into it and decided that academia was the place for me. And it's interesting that it, I went to academia first and then went to popular journalism. You know, I spent a couple semesters, a couple years kind of working in academic traditions and academic institutions, and that felt unsatisfying. And then one semester I decided, you know, I, I, people said, you know, you write cool stuff you talk about cool things, 
why don't you try writing for a newspaper? And I was like, oh God, I've never written for a newspaper before. And you know, that was a year ago and now I'm here with two columns in and working on my third one for next semester. And it's just cool that it took me getting to, you know, arguably an academic kind of tradition that doesn't really do a lot of work on the ground floor and doesn't try to communicate often with people who aren't part of that elite institution to tell me that that's what I needed to do. Right. Interesting. And people in the university said you should add your voice, but then apparently the walls have been become a bit more porous. So now you put something yeah. out and people don't have to go to Cambridge or, you know, one of the halls and pick up a paper. They can actually exactly. see it. So in some ways, yeah. interesting. So, But then it resonates outside of that. And as you said, yeah. That's tricky for a university because universities have their own ways of regulating things and doing things. In some ways, when you're writing, so as you said, you, you're addressing a national audience, but you're really talking yeah. about college concerns. So who comes to campus, who speaks, exactly. and can you talk a little bit about your thinking and coming into this process of participating and actually who comes to campus and what do people say there and what's the purpose of all of that? Definitely. I, I, yeah, I think that's what's so interesting about being part of a national dialogue while on a college campus is that college campuses really can be their own world. And the kind of rules and expectations and conversations that happen on a college campus sometimes can be so specific. And so to use like Charles Murray as an example, I think when we're when you know I and the other people who are organized were thrust into the national conversation, what we were trying to say was kind of conflated with us saying that Charles Murray shouldn't be published, or the U.S. government should, you know, pass a law right. uh, banning Charles Murray's writing. But that's not what we're doing in a specific university context. What we're doing is, like you say, we're saying, who should we, as a campus culture, want on our campus? I mean, those are two very different things. And I think when we transition to that, like, national level, that's what's lost, is the kind of specificity of colleges in general and whatever individual college campus you're working on. Interesting. So this, so what you were doing, saying we are part of this community, we are students here, we should participate in shaping the discourse and deciding what gets talked about. And some things don't make it on every college campus. Not everything is talked about all the time. But the frame is suddenly, you're touching the First Amendment, you're talking okay. about censorship, academic freedom, all sorts of things, this man's career. But you said, no, you were, we were actually concerned with a different set of issues of what happens in exactly. our university. Exactly. And can you say a little bit about how your thought process went into this around some of these events? And it could be Charles Murray or just to use it as an example that illustrates the challenges because some people wanted to bring him to campus, I guess, and some people thought yeah. not useful or what's the criteria you use? Not good, not yeah. productive or actually <laughs> detrimental. Yeah, definitely. I think the if I were to say what a criteria would be, I guess a good place to start would be addressing the concerns that the people who invited Charles Murray purportedly had, which was that they were worried that his discourse and the beliefs he represented were being lost on campus. But the reality is, from my perspective and the perspective of the other organizers, is that, you know, we've read Charles Murray's writings in class. You know, I, I've read plenty of, you know, arguments from a sociological perspective, a philosophical perspective, you know, perpetuating a kind of white supremacist ideology. So I guess the question for me then becomes not so with the one conversation of what is lost when we invite Charles Murray, you know, it, it could endanger students of color, but also what is possibly gained as members of a higher education institution, the kind of institutions where Charles Murray's 
ideology is, you know, circulated. We have these kind of conversations. So what is actually gained by inviting him to campus? And that's why I think what it gets to, these kind of situations get to, isn't a kind of discourse around knowledge or ideology, but it's about power. And it's about who students feel like they have the power to invite to campus, who has the power to be invited to Harvard campus, which is a big platform. As we said, I mean, it's a national platform. So I, I think that's the real criteria we should be focused on. We should be understanding more that students, while, you know, 20, 21 years old, have plenty left to learn, are still trying to do that kind of work, are still trying to be engaged in conversations. They aren't shutting themselves out. I think this, you know, perspective of Harvard is kind of a bubble, while certainly true in some respects, also I think does cheapen the student experience, which legitimately is a chance, an opportunity, at least in my perspective, to try to learn. But then when it comes to someone who, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center has labeled a white supremacist, actually being on the same campus as you, seeing hundreds of students turn out to the event, that's a different thing than having a real honest discourse about ideology. Interesting. So let's break this down a bit. It's really interesting. So first of all, you're saying, I have read this. We have to debate these things. This is actually known. It's not that we had to invite him. Otherwise, the Harvard students would have been deprived of this rare opportunity. They said you just, and it's actually also been discussed. And in a way, the conclusion you have drawn by studying and looking at this is to say this does not, not only not add anything new and important, and there's a whole consideration of why do people have to give a lecture at any campus because their work is available. It's fine. It adds something. But you're saying it actually does something that goes against what the university wants. So you touched on issues of safety for students of color. Can we go into that a little bit? How does it play out? So I think the way that works is the fact is, and again, this is about the kind of stereotypes of Harvard. While we have this image of Harvard and, you know, a lot of other schools like it as a kind of liberal bubble, the fact is it's pretty diverse ideologically. I, I don't know the precise numbers of who votes Democrat, who votes Republican. The fact is there's a lot of people who showed up to the Charles Murray event. Right. A lot of people justified it. So the question is, do those people, by you know inviting someone who begins to perpetuate harmful ideology, do they feel emboldened in a certain way to take things beyond the classroom, so to speak? I mean, I, I think you know last year there was a act of alleged racist vandalism at Harvard Law School's campus. I don't know if you know anything about that. That's the kind of stuff that I think happens when we begin to take these conversations out of conversations about ideology, conversations in the classroom, real honest intellectual conversations, and take them into chances to show off your power and chances to utilize your power. I mean, the Harvard Open Campus Initiative used their power to invite someone like Charles Murray to campus. The students of color, like myself, who tried to organize against it, weren't able to get anyone. We had wonderful, you know, professors able to speak, but we were scrambling to find anyone who's able and willing to respond to Charles Murray. Because he has a lot of power. And yeah. why do you think that is? It's also about something is to say people just want to maybe go for the spectacle of it or they don't even, but yeah. you're saying, but if hundreds of people show up, it gives a certain amount of gravity, gravitas yes. to that event. And then you're saying yeah. you actually 
try to organize. So can you say something about that? Because as you know, a lot of the campus controversies are kind of caricatures of there's the solitary conservative speaker, here are the yeah. agitating students. So when you say you're yeah. organized, it sounds like, you know, you have <laughs> megaphones shouting everybody down. Yeah. You bring about the end of discourse. But <laughs> what does it mean to organize at this event? What do you, what's your aim then in doing That's, something yeah. like that? Yeah, I think like this, this was the first conversation we had. As soon as we knew Charles Murray was coming, you know, the members of the Black Caucus and the other organizers, we didn't even have to have a conversation that this shouldn't be happening and we should respond. The real question was how and what's useful. And so what we ended up doing is organizing a counter event. I mean, the Boston Globe talks about it a bit. We basically gathered three professors of sociology and race studies in an, a, a room across from the building where Charles Murray's event was held and invited students who wanted to attend that event because keeping in mind that the Charles Murray event was purported to be about sociology right. and about kind of sociological analysis, not about white supremacy. And so what we offered as an alternative was, well, the fact is whether or not they are explicitly talking about it, Charles Murray deals in white supremacist ideology. And we in this room aren't going to hide from that. We're going to talk about that openly. And can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. When Harvard invites him, you're saying it amplifies the volume of that message in very concrete ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we're dealing with when we deal with someone like Charles Murray or, and this isn't, you know, he's not the only person, he's a very vocal one, but this is like a steadily growing strain of thought is a kind of scientific racism, is a kind of, that, that fits into the kind of narrative right now about free speech and about quote unquote intellectual discourse, where the kind of people who are representing harmful ideology are doing so in a way now that's pitting themselves as the kind of champions of intellectual discourse and of freedom of rationality. I say that to say that Charles Murray resists labeling himself a white supremacist. He doesn't need to. Rather, what's going on is he's kind of saying, well, to be precise, you know, in his book, The Bell Curve, he's arguing that there, that, you know, it's possible that IQ, uh, natural IQ could have a, um, a stake in the development and the prospects of individuals, and then proceeds to say that, you know, it's possible that those IQ distributions could distribute around race and gender. That's an idea that's been pretty like soundly disproved by 99% of sociologists. Right. So Charles Murray doesn't have to, you know, challenge them on a purely facts-based perspective. All right. he does in the book and all he has done since then is say, but there's a possibility. And right. you not, not wanting to talk about that possibility is you stifling free speech. When the fact is that has been debated. It's just been debated to the end, I guess. Interesting. So you're saying it's like a settled opinion. We're done with that. Yeah. We prove evolution is a theory that actually yeah. explains certain adaptive models and exactly. et cetera. <laughs> so we've settled this and you're saying he just keeps on floating this idea that let's open this up again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I think the evolution example is a great example because like the fact is the way, you know, science works is that it often isn't conclusive in that way. I mean, the theory of evolution is still a theory. Right. Um, that said, universities don't invite, you know, creationists. Harvard doesn't invite creationists to speak. Flat earth kind of theorists aren't invited to campuses to speak. Wanting to establish a scientific theory as true doesn't necessarily mean that you are against 
free discourse and again scientific conversation it's right. just science has to work at some point you do have to establish a theory as the theory right and it's interesting and then you're saying let's say the examples of evolution versus creationists of the flat earthers they're not invited to harvard because the science department would say we're not sponsoring this it doesn't exactly. advance it doesn't advance what we want to do and exactly. what we want to do is to advance knowledge to possibly toward some kind of truth, something that's also useful, but also explain something about who we are. In the Murray example, it's a bit different because it's not just he's saying, well, it's possible that there's a correlation between IQ and personal achievement or something like that. He's saying, I want to float this idea, but this idea is not one that concerns dinosaurs and you know finches and Darwin. This is something else. It is about people, and this is in a specific context of America. So you link this to a diff to an ideology that yeah, yeah exactly and and that's why i think it's fundamentally about power because when you get into conversations about i mean i guess you know with conversations about religious freedom creationism versus evolution is a little more difficult example but with the example of flat earth theorists that there's no power dynamics at play there there's no kind of power game by flat earthers asserting the flat earth theory is correct but there is power to be gained in asserting an ideology that feeds into white supremacist structures. And that's what's at play, I think. So it's odd in a way that a university would not even shrug and say, yeah, sorry, you can't come. You have some idea that's been settled, that's really been disproven, as you said. But if you come up with an idea that actually touches on the essential superiority of some people or the essential inferiority, we must have you here otherwise we're in breach of some kind of amendment which yeah. wouldn't apply to a private university in the same way regardless but so you're saying it's about power so when you organized the event did you want to bring attention to that or did you think that should have been obvious to everybody yeah i mean i think i think we hoped that there would be two ways in which the power dynamic would be addressed the first is that we paired the counter event with a group of students outside of the event urging students going into the Charles Murray event to join us. And we thought that was important because we thought it was important to kind of vocally establish counter power, I guess, a kind of resistance in the student body to this other organization that was, you know, vocally asserting yourself is important. And power often works by stamping down those kind of vocal resistances. But then I think there was another aspect of the power dynamic that was addressed just by having that kind of counter event that was a really cool and nuanced look at how institutions of privilege play into science and how a science is never neutral or apolitical. And that kind of conversation wasn't had in the Murray event. Interesting. And I think that's the kind of power that, that exists is that when you have that power, you don't have to consider how that power plays into your quote-unquote objective science. But by taking a step back, we hoped our event was able to really address the dynamic between power and science or power and intellectualism. You're touching on something when you're saying it's an institution, an elite institution or an institution of privilege. So you're actually saying the institution has a certain responsibility to at least be aware of what it is. And yeah. that, that by just acting neutrally, it is actually enacting certain structures, right? Did exactly. you, so how was that for you in some ways? Did students respond? Did they come over to your site? Was it kind of a competition yeah. sort of, you know, where are you going to go? <laughs> students did get up and leave the Murray event and join us, which was nice. I know quite a good deal of students stayed at the Murray event, but we had 
somewhere between 100 and 150 students attend our event. And that, that was really heartening. Because what that just tells us is that, again, this is about power and students not feeling as though they were empowered to be a part of this conversation. And they came out of the woodwork, I guess. They right. felt as though us, by holding this event, were allowing them to be placed up on the same level as Charles Murray. Interesting. So if, if that's the case, but your aim was ultimately, you would have thought it was, would have been better for the institution. I'm curious why you think that if Charles yeah. Murray hadn't shown up. Because you could say, yeah. like, well, you taught 100 or 150 students something maybe they hadn't been fully aware of, so you had the kind of robustest debate triggered yeah. by this visit. But you think it actually yeah. did something else beyond what you could do to get a sort yeah. of teachable moment out of it. There's something else going on. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I, I do, I'll say why I think it's still bad. But even before I say that, I do have to admit that, you know, what you said, and that's the kind of, kind of, kind of conversations I've had since now, it does give me pause, you know, at how much do we want so to speak, the people who are perpetuating these ideologies to kind of come out into the open so that, you know, we can finally begin to discuss them openly. I think that's a real conversation to have, in, you know, in a post-Trump era where uh, racist ideology is present and explicit in a way it hasn't been for quite some time. That means that people are responding to it. Is that good? I, I, I suppose it is, but I guess at the end of the day, I still would rather a world without the racist ideology <laughs> right. than with it and with a response. So yeah. that's actually important. Let's just slow that okay. down a bit. So you're saying, yes, there's an effect that at the current moment and now with the Trump presidency, probably there's a certain you know, racism has become much more public. I'm sure people were aware of it until before that, but now a lot more people pay attention because of social media. You can't avoid it or you cannot yeah. pretend to not know it. So you're saying that's maybe okay because it gets debated, but ultimately, ideally, we'd live in a society where, no, we don't have so much exactly. of that it has to be surfaced, yeah. right? So in some ways, exactly. that's the premise. In some ways, that gets forgotten quite quickly. We say, oh, it's good I, to get right. this out into the open. It's like, what if we didn't have so much of it? <laughs> and I think that, that's, uh, thank you for flagging that, because this is actually, I think, one of the most important points in a conversation about free speech, um, is that I will see and have had people argue with me that free speech is the most important value that we have. And I'm not disagreeing with that, but I'm asking, what does that premise? Because what it seems to me to be kind of holding to be an unchangeable fact is that we will always have people who believe that white folks are superior to black people or to other people of color. You know, do we want a world where we have this great thing, freedom of speech, and also have you know, white supremacist ideology? Or would we rather a world where we all still had freedom of speech, but we could debate things, you know, much less tied into power and, you know, privilege? It almost seems as though there's two different ideal worlds being fought for. And one is a world where we have free speech and no racism. And one where having free speech is good enough. And right. having racism is just an okay part of that that right. free speech will deal with. That's actually really interesting. So you're saying, I have a greater goal. I said, my goal is not to dismantle or restrict anything, but to say, let's have a better system where actually we wouldn't have to just keep on invoking free speech to justify or defend racism, but where actually we would have less racism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, and, and it seems uncontroversial, but because of the loaded power of freedom of speech, anytime you suggest that, it sounds like you're going after free speech or people read it as such. Right. Especially now in, again, this kind of post-Trump, but also social media age where 
fact and fiction have been blended together and where now everything has kind of become leveled down to opinion. You know, you right. say, oh, you believe in racism? Well, that's your opinion. I believe in the equality of races? Oh, that's my opinion. We don't feel comfortable asserting fact anymore. We feel more that we have to kind of throw out a moral relativism and then kind of wash our hands. And, 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 and in that world, if that's what you want, if you want a moral relativist world where, you know, we don't actually pursue racism as something to be destroyed, then yeah, just having freedom of speech seems fine. But if you're unsatisfied with that, if you're unsatisfied with a world where you you hear someone say something racist and you say, oh, that's just your opinion, kind of leave it alone, then something more is required. Interesting. It's, it's kind of saying that there's a kind of fundamental principle we would be committed to, and this principle would not be trumped by an abstract notion of free speech, but saying there are some values we hold, and we actually don't just say, oh, you can say the opposite, it doesn't matter, or I'll just listen to you. Say, no, actually what you are endorsing is something that goes against everything this country presumably stands exactly. for. When you did these events at Harvard, so in some ways it's pretty... Uh, courageous and brave as a student to sort of stand up to this because, as you said, it's an institution. It's, you know, it's a couple, almost 400 years old, right? It's, it, it has its own effect on people. You feel a little bit elevated, but also a little bit intimidated by it, right, yeah. when you walk yeah, around. So what was it for you to actually take on this role? And you said you were kind of cast into the role of national yeah. commentator on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely tough. I think it's primarily tough because and this is, I actually wrote an article about this, Salma and I did, about the tension of in-system work and not taking what the system gives you as enough. By that I mean, Salma and I work closely with a lot of the college administration. So just um, identify Salma for us because people may oh, not yes, listen to both yes. podcasts. So, yeah. Yes, sorry. Uh, so Salma is a good friend of mine who wrote my most recent Crimson column beside me, has organized a lot with me, was a undergraduate council representative with me. So we've been kind of and working through these issues together. We feel sometimes as though like we have to make accommodations to the institution and the kind of the people in power because doing that will help us get some real tangible benefits, right? I mean, for example, we've been working on trying to get Harvard a multicultural center. We've been, you know, working in the street, doing more radical protest attempt at that, but we also have to sit down with administrators and have conversations about space and funding. And so if we want to do that on the one hand, but on the other hand, we want to do things like the Charles Murray protest or write the things we write in the Crimson, then yeah, that kind of worries me sometimes. I'm kind of worried about having to do two things, uh, you know, vocalize what a lot of students are feeling and make them feel as though the kind of radical anger or uh, shame or discomfort they feel is vocalized, but also trying to work within the institution. It's difficult. So the in-system part is where you're feeling where you're negotiating with the institution to improve it. You're a member of the community, you're participating, but obviously your influence is different from other people. You know, you're a student, so you're one voice among thousands. Yeah. And the other one is more outside a bit, but you're yeah. also aware that there's no ivy-clad walls. The university yeah. is part of the public, and as you know, everything you do there, will, people will look at. And the university, in turn sees you as representing the university in a way, right? Yeah, so. exactly. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to talk about, as you know, I've kind of been doing, the university as its own body. I am part of that. I, am, I attend Harvard University, and I sit down with administrators. Right. Uh, as someone who is part of this institution we've been talking about, I'm a part of Harvard. The things that Harvard does hurts me, but they can also help me, right? 
So how am I balancing getting angry at the institution when it hurts me and also realizing that I have power as an agent in that system to change it um, and to better it and to make sure it builds a multicultural center that is a university action by the same you know institution that while not it didn't invite Charles Murray, it allowed for it to happen. And that, that kind of ambivalence I have about that institution is the power it has to help and to hurt. That's kind of interesting because in some ways those two examples saying you want to build a multicultural center, and there are many, many centers at Harvard, many centers. Yeah. So you're saying you want to add one. It's not you want to change everything and for the first time in the history of mankind or humankind to have <laughs> something like that. So oh, you want man. to add something that is actually, and there are many, many centers that have happened for hundreds of years of universities for different groups of students. And the universities at the same time, giving a platform stage lecture hall to somebody who would really be, you're saying, opposed to this. So in some ways, there's two yeah. different value systems. Exactly. And how do you, you think the university should have one overriding value system and ought to have that? They're kind yeah. of in conflict in a way. Yeah, they, they're 100% in conflict. And I guess the, the two responses I have is, the first is that, I mean, this gets back to the conversation we were having earlier about our ideal world being a world where everyone is not racist. Yes, I want a world where Harvard's, you know, kind of value system is one that is fundamentally against racism and will do nothing to benefit it. That's my ideal. It's going to be hard to get there because I there are other values at play and sometimes those values kind of do come into contact with each other in ways that, you know, kind of complicate things like freedom of speech. You know, I want the person who's yelling racist things at me to stop, but I can't pass a law that will make that illegal. There's two things. It's not that Harvard has or thinks of itself or any institution having explicitly racist policies. Yeah. It's trying to do that. Also, is legally mandated to have equality guarantees. Yeah. Yeah. Like it actually would be out of the federal, you know, it couldn't do that. Yeah. And then you're saying what you just said is kind of interesting. So if someone actually, you know, uses racial epithets or something like that, yeah. you actually would have a way to say this is not appropriate and okay and yeah. actually probably not permitted in yeah. a Harvard classroom, dorm room, yeah, hallway, gym, yeah. whatever, right? So you would say this is actually, and this is, I think, part of the crux of the value system that any institution, a workplace, a university, you know, you're it's like an apartment building, you say, if you call somebody certain names, there are certain rules and say, this is not okay here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a better way to phrase it. I don't want Harvard to be value neutral. Like, I, right. yeah, right. That's, I, exactly. that's what's interesting. What you're saying in some ways, because value neutral would pretend it's value neutral as if everybody arrives in the same way and you know it has the same background, same knowledge, and everything means the same. This kind of false equivalence. Uh -huh. But they're saying no. Harvard actually has, for example, Harvard in the late '60s, an example, admitted female students. You know, yeah. when Radcliffe was, you know, I don't know, I don't remember what the word they use, integrated, attached, yeah. absorbed, married yeah. to Harvard. I, I, don't, I don't mean to be cynical, <laughs> but it's, but it transformed the institution in things that I think everyone, including the outgoing president, would think was a positive change. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there's a value yeah. and there was a value suddenly about, to say, exactly. So in some ways, and, this is what you're saying. There should be a value that should be shared by everybody. Yeah, be kind of a common denominator that doesn't make people uncomfortable. It's just like what we all agree with. Yeah, exactly. And it's difficult because, again, this word the university doesn't yeah. capture the kind of complexity of a university, which is a place with a lot of different actors and a lot of different 
people who are pushing for and urging for different things. So we have like, you know, does, when we're talking about the university, are we talking about the students or are we talking about the administration or are we talking about this one dean in particular? And if what well, we want... You're missing, yeah. you're missing a whole bunch of people. The, fac- yeah, the faculty? Right. The, the, um, I mean, the board. Who the faculty? The Harvard Corporation, the faculty. Anyone <laughs> attached to Harvard is yes. part of that university. And, this, and so, I, would, I would add, actually, this is really useful. I think the staff, because yeah. they don't have a voice normally to say when someone like a, you know, a kind of a racist speaker comes and they have to be there, you know, keep the security, work there, and they don't have a voice in these conversations, uh, really, it's very hard for them because they're yeah, being employed. Great example of that is, I think, I think it was about a year or two years ago, was the, the dining hall strike at Harvard, where dining hall workers weren't receiving certain demands that they had as workers for the university, and so went on strike for anywhere between a month and two months, I believe. I bring that up to say it was... The, a major point of the conversation was how students will interact with that. And a lot of students were kind of like, no, I won't be engaged in this. This isn't my fight. This is an internal kind of battle between workers and, you know, the certain deans who write their paycheck. That's not me. But if we are trying to talk about the university as a kind of microcosm, as a world in itself, yeah. be it one without those kind of ivy-covered walls, a porous world, but still a world of its own nonetheless, Yes. why separate ourselves, you know? isn't having a value system mean having a value system for everyone. So you're saying it's kind of a microcosm for society. So because exactly. even if I never take a public bus, I may or may exactly. not have a strong opinion on public transportation because it's exactly. a public good and they're public goods. So actually the dining hall being served for if you're eating there, if you're participating, your tuition dollars or fed or grant money is going yeah. to that, you're participating in a way. Right? Exactly. And that's what having a value means. You know, it's not about we're not talking about self-interest. We're not saying that, you know, the students who, because there are a lot of students who are unaffected by someone like Charles Murray to come, coming to campus. But if we're asserting that we as a body need a value system, then that means that even those students who aren't affected should be involved. Because there, there's this other thing, this kind of abstract notion of what we want to be that's above our heads. I'm going to ask you something specific about the okay. students who were not affected yeah. by Charles Murray, which is really white America. So I'm saying this, you know, I'm a white European male. So in some ways, I'm really interested in this question. I've thought about this a lot. Why should they care? How do you bring them into conversation and say, look, this is an institution we're all part of. We all committed that we all part of it. It's not that I'm less part of it than you are, but it seems like you are not really seeing what this causes as a problem. Yeah, I've also written about this. <laughs> I know, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the first article I ever wrote was partic- was precisely about <laughs> right. allyship. And it's this question of some people want to say, well, pragmatically what we should be doing is arming those allies, you know, as members of the fight, as people who are affected. We should be shifting the conversation away from, for example, the black and brown families that are being affected by Donald Trump's immigration ban and talk about our democratic institutions, which affect everyone. So the problem isn't that there's a sector of the population who's dying. The problem is that the kind of institutions that affect all of us are broken in a certain way, and we should all want to fix that. I don't like that. I don't think that's useful. I think when we are having a conversation about allyship and when we're trying to think how best to involve allies, I think we should take their position as allies seriously. We should, you know, go back to that idea of a value system and say to those allies, my life being under attack 
is under threat? Is that the kind of world you want to live in? Not a world where you're under threat, but where other people are under threat and you don't care. Right. I think that's kind of the way that it should be framed, not, you know, a kind of absorbing allies into the, you know, victimized population, so to right. speak. I see, I see what you're saying. So it's not to appeal to some intersectional dimension and say you also are in some ways affected, but saying, no, there is a difference. I'll give you two quick things to respond to. James Baldwin expressed what you just expressed yeah. and said. As a, first of all, as a black American, if you're not at the simmering at the level of near rage, you are probably <laughs> insane or not awake. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also saying as a white American to not be aware of what this country is doing means you are actually not a full human being. You are actually not in touch with your own humanity. And he grows up to be a religious person. It comes out of a deep religious belief that having a soul means being awake to humanity. Yeah. Then Toni Morrison says much later, these people are insane. It's a level of insanity not to care what happens in this country, to just walk through this country and not pay attention yeah. to injustice is insanity, that they're mentally ill. And I sort of think the difference between Baldwin and Morrison, and that, it's interesting because in some ways, yeah. what you're trying to do is to change an entire institution mm -hmm. to reach your fellow students. You now have a platform through the Crimson and online so that people are paying attention and the, you know, the majority is in power in some ways. How do you address people? Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting what you just said about allies, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love Baldwin and Morris. What, you know, you're talking about is precisely what I was thinking through when I wrote that piece was the fire next time. Yes, yes. And, and what I love about Baldwin, and I love about that book in particular, but all of his writing, is that he really does try to recenter conversations about racism and white supremacy back in the allies or the perpetrators back in, you know, white America to say, no, racism isn't a problem with black people. It's not. This is what I just wanted to hear when you said, so is Charles Murray, is he a problem for black students at Harvard? Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, wouldn't Baldwin say, he's not my problem. He is your yeah. problem. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and to not even make it about him and say, to have racism in an institution is, so Baldwin would have said, thank you. I do. I own this already. Yeah. With the history of this country, I do not, like, it's your problem. So maybe this would be the distinction I would make. Mm -hmm. Charles Murray's coming to campus is the problem of black students because it's going to harm black students. Yes. Yeah. But the right. problem of white students is their apathy. That's what white students should be sitting with. Okay. If it were the case, as is not the case, but if it were the case that racism was just about a couple of bad apples, so to speak, was just, you know, about certain people, you know, believing certain things, but not about a nationwide or global system that absorbs all bystanders into its reach. If it was just about those individual people, and if Charles Murray was one of those people, for the white students to then not speak up, that would be their moral crisis. They wouldn't have to be concerned in the way black students are concerned with their well-being, with their safety, but they would have to be concerned with their own moral fault at yes. not being outraged, at seeing other people. In my Crimson piece, I say I don't like the word empathy, and it really is about sympathy. It really is about being able to feel for other people and not center yourself not make it all about your practical concerns, but it really is about your moral failure to not care about others. Right, right, yeah. 
I'm listening to you. I'm also really aware of the irony that I'm asking you to explain this when you're saying it is not on me to explain this all the time. It is on you to do the work. It is on you to study this. It's on you to know the same history. It's a shared history. So I'm fully aware of it. I do want to say, I mean, I really applaud you for having, as I said, having had the courage to publish these things. And what has been the response for you as a student? Has it changed the way you think about yourself as a student? I think it really fundamentally has because in some ways being quote unquote an activist or an advocate, whatever you want to say those words mean, is a full-time job for me and it's not distinct from my being a student. And I think this is not just for this case for me, but for a lot of students of color or students from marginalized backgrounds at universities is that my academic work is about white supremacy. I do art on campus, that's about white supremacy. Journalism is about white supremacy. It's all kind of subsumed under this project of me, a black person, trying to respond to racist systems. I feel like I maybe have a lot more faith in students and student power and student, I don't even know how to say it, just kind of the strength of students than a lot of people. Students, especially students of color, are forced to handle the work that people decades older than them aren't doing. They should be taken seriously, and the concerns of students should be taken seriously. And the output of students, the journalistic output, the creative output, the academic output should be taken seriously. Being a student for people that are marginalized is life or death, and it's tied into their trying to find a way to exist in structures that are intended to dismantle them. So that that has been my foremost change of heart, is believing in students, I guess. It's very powerful what you're saying also, that those two things are inseparable, your activism and your existence as a student and someone who is learning. Do you think there's a shift in this Trump era and from earlier student movement because what you're saying is that these students, what you do have, for example, which you didn't have, is social media and access, reach. Exactly. You're also f- now going up against other people who are using the same exact tools. Yeah. So it's not that, you know, there's a simple, yeah. oh, this is all good. Yeah. No, I think the landscape has changed pretty drastically in a lot of different ways. I mean, I, I couldn't talk about them all, but some that jumped to my mind is I'm a philosophy student. I think theory is really important. And theory has become accessible in such an interesting way and has become so because of social media and has become so formational to student activism. I just think about the way in which intersectionality as an academic concept has proliferated among student political discourse and students are sharing posts detailing what it means to be intersectional, that their friends studying economics and studying biology and studying computer science are reading and learning about. So I guess one major difference is that I don't want to use the word academic, but theoretical underpinnings of any kind of social justice movement have become widely accessible. And I think that's done a lot to motivate people, is that before maybe we would see protests led by people who had read Karl Marx, for example, or, you know, people who had read Simone de Beauvoir. But, you know, or Angela now, Davis and or Angela Davis, Exactly. <laughs> but now we have people who know Angela Davis, who've seen her quotes online, but have yep. never picked up a book of hers in the streets. Right. And that's pretty crazy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Is that a good thing, a bad thing, or is that just I a think, different yeah, thing? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't know. It's, I mean, uh, it's interesting. You can type in Audre Lorde and you'll get all the good quotes. I'm not sure if that's the work of really understanding and grasping what she tried to deconstruct, right? So you're saying that both yeah. needs to happen. Yeah, I think that's great because then what we do 
is we see a kind of cheapening of the theory until we reach a point where freedom of speech, for example, has now lost kind of all its theoretical integrity right. and now means almost nothing, but is just a kind of response that can be thrown out and people can throw out a quote from, you know, whoever they like who has said the well, words freedom of speech together. They always quote a dissenting justice in 1919, yeah. which is always really interesting to me. That was a dissenting opinion, not even exactly. the ruling opinion. Uh, some, uh, that, that becomes... Or, yeah, like, marketplace of ideas yes. you know those kind of words are tossed around and they don't mean anything they originally meant right. so yeah I, I i think of it in one way as a good thing because it does mobilize but it's a double-edged sword because right. yeah it cheapens the theory right i have a, a, a concluding question do you think you're gonna continue doing this you step down from the undergraduate council because you said it's a, it's really a very hard burden on, on students yeah. to do this kind of work but do you think you'll continue to write or try to write for other platforms once the yeah. crimson doesn't take your stuff anymore because you will have, gradu <laughs> you will have graduated <laughs> yeah, at yeah. some point right eventually <laughs> yes exactly. yeah definitely i tend to go into academia i tend to uh, intend to continue to think of these things on a theory level And what writing for the Crimson has taught me is that that has to be paired with popular writing. And that has to be paired with bringing the things that you're talking about in the ivory tower down to earth. So I, I'm going to write for the Crimson as long as I possibly can. And then when that's no longer an option, I do want to continue to kind of occupy this public space. Going back to what we were just talking about, kind of trying to reinstill that kind of rigorous and strong theoretical roots back into our discourse. I think your op-ed is a great example. I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is a great example. Right. I think anyone who's trying to do the work of what I would call philosophy or theory, and that's just question and not take when someone says, you know, this is freedom of speech, not be like, oh, okay, but say, no, is it? Are you actually right. doing what you say you're doing? Ask those hard questions. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah, and in some way, that's the ringing endorsement of what free speech is supposed to be. It's exactly. supposed to be a space for reflection and deep analysis and not just a bunch of words thrown around. And I'm really grateful to you for taking the time. And I, I do want to say again, I completely appreciate the irony of making you go through this. But I also, it's, it's really... Um, Fantastic talking to you, and I want to commend you for um, actually improving an institution that I have dearly loved and benefited from so much. And I do think if Emerson Hall will be a greater place because you will have studied there. So that's really good. I appreciate that. Thank you. And right. this is a wonderful opportunity. Okay. I'm so happy to talk about these things. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much, right. Nicholas. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.